Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Thanks so much for joining us on Triple R this fabulous morning. The sun is shining here in Melbourne. Things are going great, and we have an amazing show for you. We have 20 international PhD students ready to be interviewed one after another over the next sort of a half an hour or so. It's our 20 PhDs in 20 minutes program. They each get about a minute. I take up about a minute, and that fills up most of the show. They're all online now. We've got them all on Zoom. They're from all over the world. And we are going to start off with number one. Her name is Chirani Pathmas Warren, and she's from the Climate Change Research Centre in the University of New South Wales. Good morning, Chirani. Good morning, Shane. It's great to talk to you. Now, you're working on this uh, this really big problem of heat waves that affect both terrestrial and non-terrestrial locations. Tell us about what's interesting about that, because I guess the question is, what is the cause, and is that cause the same? Yes, so um, a lot of research has looked into heat waves on land and heat waves in the ocean independently, but not a lot has been done to try and understand if there's a potential link between the two. So my research tries to understand if there's a common driver that drives uh, a terrestrial and a marine heat wave at the same time, or if these two events interact with each other, causing um, one to amplify the other. Now, tell me, is this is this you sitting in the room combing through satellite and other data, or are you out there, you know, in, in the field? I would love to be out there, but no, actually, my work is predominantly co- computational. So um, I have all the data available online, which is downloaded for me. And then it's just a lot of number crunching, lots of coding, um, running computer simulations and trying to understand uh, what's going on out there. Yeah. I suppose it, it may be different in different locations as well, like the answer may be different depending on where you look? Yes. So currently we're looking at um, all over the Australian coastal belt. Um, and we've found a few hotspots um, like the Ningaloo region uh, around the Tasman Sea and some some coastal regions of uh, the Great Barrier Reef where they've known to have some record-breaking marine heat waves. And so it's interesting to find out if these actually link with a terrestrial heat wave at the same time. Um, so there are definitely uh, regions, certain regions, where this effect is more focused than others. Mm. Is it getting worse? Yes, yes. So heat waves are getting more frequent, are lasting longer, which means um, there's a higher tendency for them to overlap with each other, um, leading to these kind of uh, compound events. Yeah, well, look, it's great that you're on it, Charani. Thanks so much for being our first contestant in the 20 PhDs in 20 Minutes program. Thanks for having me, Shane. Great job. Next up, folks, is Cassie McDonald. She's from the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Cassie. Good morning, Shane. Great to be here with you. Thanks so much for coming on. Now, you're uh, looking at that the thing that we all hate, the hospital waiting areas, you know, we're sitting around and, and the possibility that this can be really used as a place where health literacy is improved. I mean, I've been in them. It's the last thing on my mind. How do we do that? Yeah, great question. Thanks, Shane. So in my PhD, we set out to understand from the perspectives of consumers whether hospital waiting areas had potential to contribute to health literacy and if so, what it was they wanted and needed. Um, So the first steps we took were to observe what was available to waiting patients in these waiting areas. Um, And then the next steps were to interview patients to get a sense of whether what was available was meeting their needs. Um, And you're exactly right, the the underlying purpose of this was to uh, explore what potential these waiting spaces have to contribute to health literacy and whether they could offer health information, resources and supports that really benefit consumers to use these environments more effectively. Yeah, presumably we could all do a little less boring time in, in those environments too. So if you can make it entertaining in some way, that it's got to have some positive impact on everyone. 
Yeah. And what was interesting from consumers' perspectives, they uh, said that they valued having access to reliable and trustworthy and reputable health information Mm. that could be vetted by health professionals before being displayed in waiting areas. Um, And I think that's an important point that you make, you know, how can we offer something to patients, you know, and and really value their time? But secondly, we all know it's so challenging to find health information information although there's a, yep. a huge amount of it of it available to us online yeah. knowing what's reliable and what applies to us is challenging so yep. yeah consumers indicated that their hospital waiting areas have potential to contribute to this sounds great cassie glad to hear that you're on it and next time i'm in the hospital waiting area i expect to be entertained and informed great stuff thanks Shane. next up is sabrina butler from the university of arizona in the united states good morning or good afternoon i should say sabrina how are you going good thank you for having me shane it's fantastic to have you on now you're working on a on a very very big issue and that is the survival of black mothers and babies and how that the mortality rates are just ridiculous by comparison to their their white counterparts tell us what you're doing there And so my work previously has been more community work. It's been about making sure that the community is empowered and how do we change the numbers? How do we make the communities the face of public health? Um, Because at the end of the day, it is a public health crisis when um, people aren't surviving. Kind of the basic thing we've been doing since the beginning of time. Yeah, it seems to me as though there is such a disparity in the the care provision and access that different communities in the United States are feeling. And we know there's issues with the health system there, but that disparity seems enormous. Yeah, so a lot of times we go directly to disparities or um, accessibility, but it actually, when it comes to Black women and children, it doesn't matter if they're educated, if they're affluent. Um, when you have examples of Serena Williams and Beyonce, mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter where we physically are financially, economically, just socially, um, culturally. We all are experiencing these disparities. Um, the studies have even shown even a white um, mother who just has a high school um, graduation diploma will survive, is more likely to survive than a black woman with a doctorate. So it doesn't really, it's not really accessibility. It's really about the care. It's really about cultural specific assistance when we're giving birth. Yeah. And, and in the last 30 seconds, how are you going about uh, making those changes with your research work? Um, For my research work, I really want to focus on getting programs that can be implemented that are sustainable. We have a lot of things that are knickknacks, but we really need programs that we put in place and that stay and that encourage the community to put an effort and work towards it. Yep. Excellent stuff, Sabrina. Thanks so much for joining us from the Northern Hemisphere. We really appreciate it. Folks, uh, next up, our fourth uh, member of the 2020 today is Jackson McDonald from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research. Good morning, Jackson. Good day, Shane. How are you going? I'm doing well. Now, you work in the area of immunotherapies and this, this whole issue that not all cancers really are as amenable to these therapies when we look at them. And, and in particular, I think you've been looking at lung cancer and how that's working out. Tell us about that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So the lung cancer I'm working on is lung adenocarcinoma. Um, And I work on a particularly aggressive form of lung adeno, which is uh, seen to be chemo-resistant as well as radiotherapy-resistant. And what's been touted as sort of the silver bullet to cancer therapy now um, are immunotherapies, which try to uh, revamp our own immune system to try and clear out the tumour cells. Um, But this form of lung adenocarcinoma is particularly aggressive and can resist this newer form of immunotherapeutic treatment. Mm. So it's interesting to me because it seems as though the most powerful thing we have is our immune system and the most complicated thing we have. I mean, these cancers must be pretty special to be able to, you know, get past all of that when of all the arsenals we have at our disposal, you know, tweaking that system as our toolkit um, seems to be the best one. Yeah, so these cancers are pretty smart. Um, They will undergo uh, immune evasion techniques to try and not be detected by our, like, killer T cells. Um, They can siphon off supplies from neighbouring cells to continue to grow. So in my research, I want to look at how we could modify um, these different pathways to try and um, knock them out, basically. Find what's really driving their... um, 
growth abilities to yeah cut cut them off at the source yeah look it's a, it's a great piece of work and i think um you know, I remember about 10 years ago, I said the two areas of research I was most interested in were neuroscience and immunotherapy for a range of things, not just cancers, but, you know, autoimmune diseases, everything, and just that complexity of the immune system. So great that you're working on that. Uh, I know your supervisor, I think, uh, is responsible for me getting a cat some time ago. So <laughs> if I've got that person right, um, good luck with the ongoing work. And thanks so much, Jackson, for being on the show. Thanks so much, Shane. Next up is Nathan Cook from Monash University. Good morning, Nathan. Uh, morning, Shane. Thanks for having us. Good to talk to you. Now, you are working in the area of food within hospitals and the waste and how we go about, I guess, checking on what that waste is. I mean, I think most of us have been in that situation where we've been in some hospitals and the food is, shall we say, you know, and other hospitals where it's great. But um, how, how do we monitor that? How do we monitor how much is used and, and thrown away and those waste levels and so forth? Yeah, so it is a very complex population as well as some people have the predecessor knowledge that, you know, food waste in the hospital is large due to the quality of the food. So what me and my team have done have uh, developed a tool by looking at all the waste audit methods that are available in the literature and developed a consensus tool to try and help food services, uh, hospital food services, that is, measure their food waste more accurately and then in an effort to try and reduce the amount that they do send to landfill. Yeah. Do, do we have a feel for the sort of causes for the waste? Like, you know, is it, is it people not eating it due to quality or quantity? Or, you know, there's, I assume there's different reasons for why we have waste at home. Yeah, there's so many different reasons, especially in the home where, you know, the majority of food waste does occur. Within the hospital, there is that, that complex population. So they are sick. They don't really feel like eating. Then there is the, the problem of food quality, but also the environment in the hospital. Like people are um, off getting, like you said, getting CAT scans or they're getting mm. a surgery or you know, they're getting visited by families. So there's so many different ways that uh, the opportunity to eat in a hospital is getting interrupted as well, uh, which does cater to that food waste. Yeah, look, it's a fascinating problem and one that, as you say, is very complicated. Uh, Nathan, good luck with this work. I hope you uh, you do some good because I think we'd all benefit from better nutrition in hospitals, better quality of food, lower waste, and, you know, you get back from that MRI and your meal's actually not cold. So um, good luck with the ongoing work. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you. All right, folks, uh, we're flying through them. We're up to number six. Alicia Ringan is from the University of Melbourne's um, psych, uh, Mel- sorry, the Melbourne Neuropsychiatry Centre. Good morning, Alicia. Good morning. How are you, Shane? I'm good. Now, you're working on uh, essentially the interplay between the, the condition of um, bipolar disorder and some of those cardiovascular risk factors, so you know whether it be diabetes or other things. I wasn't aware of this interplay. Tell us what's happening there. Yeah, so the key sort of focus of my research, as you said, is cognition in bipolar disorder. And this is because we know that a substantial number of individuals with bipolar disorder experience cognitive deficits, um, persisting even during eudemic phases, so when they aren't experiencing a mood episode. And this means that these deficits really adversely impact functioning and quality of life for those with the disorder. But unfortunately, there's really minimal knowledge about what may be causing these impairments. So if we move to research in the general population, we see that metabolic and lifestyle cardiovascular risk factors like things like type 2 diabetes, as well as physical inactivity and sensory behaviour, contribute quite significantly to this cognitive dysfunction. And we also know that these same risk factors are significantly elevated in bipolar disorder. So this means that these risk factors could really help explain the cognitive deficits within the illness and ideally inform future treatment targets. Yeah, it sounds to me like if, you know, it's one of those things where we see these interplays between various conditions that happen all the time in the body. Um, It seems so presumably then if you could, you know, lower a lot of those risk factors, um, you you might also mediate some of the problems with bipolar disorder. Is that that the thinking in in addition to obviously the the drug regimens that are required? Yeah, that's definitely the thinking. So we know that these risk factors um, share a lot of similar pathophysiological similarities with bipolar disorder. Mm. So things like heightened levels of inflammation, oxidative stress, and so on. And so if we can target these risk factors, if we can reduce sedentary behavior, if we can increase physical activity, it's not only going to help cognition, but it'll also help, you know, all these underlying things that are related to bipolar. Yeah, it's a very serious condition. And I, I know, um, you know, people with it have have a lot of difficulty managing, you know, over especially protracted periods of time. So um, look, great work, Alicia. Thanks so much for chatting to us. And uh, hopefully you'll find some of these good connections that can help people out. Yeah, hopefully so. Excellent. Uh, next up is Samaya Kabir from the School of Engineering at RMIT University. Good morning, Samaya. 
Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you. Now, I was thinking this morning as it was freezing cold in Melbourne and I turned my heating on that uh, later today the sun's coming out and we might need the opposite. Um, There's obviously big issues with the amount of power and so forth we use. And you're looking at the possibility of, um, you know, specialist window coatings, smart windows, essentially, to cut down on that requirement. Tell us what you're doing. Uh, yes, and so every year we spend uh, thousands of our money uh, for heating and cooling systems, and uh, this excessive use of air conditioning system also leads to global warming. So if we can regulate solar heat through our windows, that can help us reducing the use of heating and cooling system. And in the existing solution for heat regulation, either need electricity or we need to compromise with the visibility. Mm. So in, in my research, I'm exploring novel materials and thin film coatings to choose one that is suitable for regulating the solar heat. So after investigating different uh, materials, I have found one patient's materials named vanadium dioxide that have these properties to change its optical properties with temperature. And so now I am working to tuning the properties that can regulate heat uh, with the solar light. And the final goal is to make a solution using this vanadium dioxide nanoparticles so that we can spray on the windows and that can be functional for heat blocking coatings. Fantastic. Look, this, this research just blows me away. I mean, it's, I, I love the end part there when you talked about just spraying it on. So we're not talking about, you know, reconstructing the whole window industry, but we're talking about an additive that can be really powerful and change the way our homes and our buildings and so forth interact with the environment. Uh, Samaya, thanks so much for chatting to us today on Einstein and Go-Go. Thank you. Next up, uh, we're up to number eight, folks. It's Georgina Carson from the Centre for Quantum Computation and Communication Technology at the University of New South Wales up in Sydney. Good morning, Georgina. Morning, Shane. How are you? Now, you've got a really easy job because I used to be in this field myself. You're trying to build a quantum computer. Um, Firstly, uh, how does a quantum computer differ from a normal computer? Oh, God. Um, So a quantum computer is a new type of machine where uh, we represent information a little bit differently to a normal computer. So normal computers are made up of transistors, and those transistors are either ones or zeros. In a quantum computer, instead of a transistor, we have something that uh, exhibits quantum properties, such as an atom, an electron, etc. And we can use that to then represent information much more efficiently and solve some kinds of problems that are just too hard for normal computers. Damn good job there. Um, now, you're, you're doing this with individual atoms. So what atoms are you using and, and what sort of structures are you making? Yeah, so I uh, work with phosphorus atoms in silicon crystals. So silicon, which is what's used to make normal computer chips. Uh, I use a machine called a scanning tunneling microscope, and I use that to place phosphorus atoms at just the right spots in my silicon crystal to build a computing chip that works on the operations between those atoms. And, and what's my understanding is the biggest challenges, sort of environmental factors um, from the outside. It, it, can you how, do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, um, so there's a few different ways to build a quantum computer and our way is really exciting to us because we come up with really stable uh, quantum computing parts. So what we do is we cool down our chips to almost absolute zero, so almost the coldest you can go, uh, and that allows our atoms and our electrons to stay in the states that we want them to be in. We also isolate it from the environment. We use magnetic shields. We use all kinds of things to make sure that nothing can touch our atoms because they're really, really delicate when they're in the states that we're trying to work with. Right, look, it's super cool stuff, Georgina. Uh, having been in that space loop myself when I was still working as a physicist, I know how difficult it is. And um, good good luck. Um, I know it's a long game, um, but it's one that uh, we all we all are excited about. So thanks so much for chatting to us today about it. Thanks, Shane. Thanks for the chat. Next up is Kaifa Rashid from RMIT University and the CSIRO and also from Ansto, big collaborative project. Good morning, uh, Kaifa. Uh, good morning, Shane. It's How great. Oh, good. It's great to talk to you. Now, you work in a really cool area. You, you're, you're sort of mimicking or, or basically 3D printing materials and um, out of composites that would be used potentially in space. How, how, first of all, what materials do you use? And secondly, how do you, how do you simulate the space environment? Okay, so uh, so the main motivation of my research uh, was because of the renewed interest in global uh, 
space exploration. So uh, I was interested because, you know, right now, uh, because of this uh, push for space exploration, there will be a demand for uh, compact satellites of these CubeSats. But these CubeSats are made of uh, aluminium and other heavy metals. So if you replace these metals with polymers uh, and also use 3D printing to uh, manufacture these uh, satellites, that will uh, reduce cost savings. So right now it costs about $20,000 to launch one kilo to low Earth orbit. So if we reduce uh, mass of these satellites, we can uh, drastically reduce the cost of launching them. So that was the main motivation behind my project. Uh, and uh, so coming back to your question about how we simulate space, that's, that's very, very challenging because, you know, uh, in space, the environment is totally different from Earth. So there are uh, thermal mm. cycles of uh, between minus 120 to 130 degrees C. And there's a uh, vacuum, there's UV radiation, there's uh, radiation from galactic cosmic rays. So we have uh, facilities that can simulate each of these individually, but not all of them together. And that's where that's why it is a collaborative project mine. So, uh, like CSIRO is helping me with you know uh, developing these materials. So, uh, uh, because the materials I'm using are polymers that melt at very high temperatures, uh, around 300 350 degrees C. Uh, so, processing mm. them, it, you need like really high tech uh, machinery, which uh, like uh, not not all. Uh, you know, labs would possess. Yeah. So. Oh, look, it's it's super cool stuff, uh, Kaifa. You know, if you've ever listened to the show, people know I'm a bit of a space nerd. I love some of this stuff. And um, one of the things I love is the old uh, speech by Kennedy when he was first talking about going to the moon. And he talks, if you read the whole speech, he talks about um, materials that hadn't yet been invented being needed for, for that particular mission. And that always fascinated me. So thanks so much uh, for talking to us about this. Good luck with the ongoing work. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, number 10, folks, is Rachel Nelligan from the University of Melbourne. Good morning, Rachel. Good morning, Shane. Great to be here. It's great to talk to you. Now, as I sit here with a slightly sore right knee, I think of your work around knee osteoarthritis and I get scared. Um, now, I know you're, <laughs> you're working on the, you know, the last thing you ever want to do when you're in a bit of discomfort and pain is go and actually do, do exercise. But you've been working on a way to do that. Tell us, tell us about get, how you get people encouraged. Yeah, we, we have. And, and we do know that exercise is a key treatment to help people manage pain, um, painful knee osteoarthritis. But starting and sticking to exercise isn't easy for, for people with knee osteoarthritis. And a big part of that is uh, misinformation uh, about pain and exercise, but also issues of access. People don't know how to access the right professionals and motivation, the same as all of us starting exercise and, and sticking to it for the long term is hard. So we developed a fully self-directed, digitally delivered exercise program for people with knee osteoarthritis, and it's a program that is 24 weeks. It provides good evidence-based education to bust those myths that exercise is, is bad for you, and um, it prescribes the 24-week strengthening exercise that's supported by a text message program as well. So people receive regular weekly SMS mm. from us helping to encourage them stick to exercise and overcome barriers such as, I shouldn't exercise, my knee hurts. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds so engaged with, with um, the patients there. And did you find that that Im improved the uptake as a result? Yeah, we, we um, studied this intervention in a randomised clinical trial of 206 people with knee pain and knee osteoarthritis. And excitingly, this was published in JAMA Internal Medicine recently. And the study was shown that the program really did meaningfully reduce knee pain and improve function in the majority of our participants, as well as quality of life and, um, and self-efficacy measures as well. Yeah, look, it makes such a difference, and I think uh, you know we've all been in that situation where if we're in we're in pain, we don't want to move. I I I, heard, I think I had a a zoom related injury in my foot recently because I'd just been sitting in one space for too long, and I had this cramp, and I thought the last thing I ever want to do is move the thing. But I thought I heard my physio in the back of my head going, <laughs> "Get moving, you idiot!" You know that's the thing that will help. But it, it's hard. Yeah. You need the encouragement. Look, it sounds like a great program, and also you know appropriately delivered remotely at the moment, which is exactly. which is great for patients as well so thanks so much for being on our 2020 program rachel thanks for having me shane triple r
You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. We're partway through. In fact, we're exactly halfway through the 20 PhDs in 20 Minutes program. It's our sixth one of these that we have run over the last couple of years. The last five, of course, being remotely. Um, but that gives us the opportunity to do people from all over the world. So number 11th on our list today is Jess Wiley from the Latrobe Institute for Molecular Science at Latrobe University. Good morning, Jess. Good morning, Shane. Thanks for having me. It's great to talk to you. Now, you're working on one of these problems that we keep hearing about because it's getting worse and worse and worse, and that is the issue of anti antibiotic resistance from many of the bugs trying to kill us off. And you're looking at new ways to, I, I suppose, enhance the antibiotics in the arsenal that we have. Tell us about that. Yeah, so unfortunately, the classical approach to antibiotic discovery, so starting with the new compound and getting it to market, can take up to 20 years. Mm. And so we need to find new ways that we can bring new drugs to the market in a faster way. So to do so, we're using a lot of different approaches, including taking the arsenal of drugs that we already have and changing them slightly so that they have an improved efficacy and actually overcome the current antibiotic resistance that we do face at the moment. Mm. Are there scenarios where there are drugs on the shelf where you know, we kind of got them a certain way down the track and then we gave up on them because a few people had adverse reactions and maybe now with genomics and so forth we can work out who they are? Is there, are there possibilities like that? Yeah, there is. And we can actually take these molecules now and actually change them so they no longer have these adverse effects. So we test them for toxicity in mo um, models so we can make sure that they are safe for use in patients and to treat these new infections that we face. Yeah. And, and are there any sort of on the horizon that you think we'll be seeing in the next, say, five years as a result of this sort of sh shortcutting of the process? Well, we hope so. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's a process that will take still some time, hopefully less than that 20 years. But hopefully we'll get some new antibiotics to market that will have this improved activity and that we can now start treating those infections that we face that are have been resistant to the current antibiotic. Yeah, look, it's a it's a huge problem. Jess, thanks for t talking to us about it. I hope uh, we do really uh, nail that problem and and you know get away from that two decade long production period, which you know especially when you get to year eighteen and you have to stop and they don't turn out as a real as a really big problem. So, good luck with the ongoing work. Uh, thanks for the chat. Thank you very much, Dave. Next up is Rebecca Abbott, who is from the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute for Medical Research. Good morning, Rebecca. Good morning, Shane. Thank you for having me. It's great to talk to you. Now, you're working on genetic en genetically engineered immune cells and how we can sort of, I, I suppose, use these to go after particular types of cancers and tumours. How, how do you modify an immune cell in this way to you know, know that cancer's the go? So what we're able to do is identify proteins that are just expressed on cancerous cells and then we engineer a synthetic receptor and put them into the killer cells of the immune system, the T cells, and that enables them to kind of seek and destroy, if you like, find those cancer cells in the body and to kill them. This works really well for blood cancers, um, but we haven't seen that same success in treating many different types of solid tumours, and this is for the reasons that Jackson explained earlier. Mm. So my research is um, focused on brain cancer and genetically engineering immune cells to recognise brain cancer cells. And then instead of going in and killing those uh, cancerous cells in the brain, we have the cells go in and they deliver an anti-tumour cargo, if you like, directly to the tumour site. And this preserves the healthy tissue surrounding the tumour as well as uh, the rest of the body where these molecules might have some toxic effects. Yeah, very cool. Now, one, one quick question before we go. Do you have to go in and, and tweak each one of these cells individually, like and say, here's one and pass it on, or, or is there a process for like doing it with a lot of them in one go? So we do a lot of them in one go. We have to have very large numbers of immune cells to give back to patients that have cancer. So we do a lot of them in one go, and then we send them all back. Right. Now, look, it's, it's fabulous. I, I just love that idea if you can, you can get a, a big load of them in so that they do the job quickly. And I think uh, as with many drugs and other things, targeted therapies where, you know, you get everything to the location rather than it bleeding throughout the whole damn body and, and you know, causing problems elsewhere is really important. Well, thanks so much, Rebecca. Great work. Keep it up. Thank you for having me. Next up, Ajmal Aziz from the Bionics Institute and RMIT University. Ajmal, good morning. Good morning, Shane. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Now, you're working on the area of sort of neural stimulation devices. So things like, I, I suppose, the bionic ear, but also some of the new optical devices and so forth. And my understanding from your work is that they're not quite as optimized as we would like, and we can do some things to improve those. Tell us about that.
Yes, you are correct. Like according to <coughs> World Health Organization, 4.6 million people suffer from disabling hearing loss. The cochlear implant is one of the most successful bionic devices ever developed. There are well over like over half a million cochlear implant users worldwide. Like most people do pretty well with their cochlear implant, but what they hear does not come close to normal sound. Like the current cochlear implant consists of just a dozen or so electrodes trying to compensate the work of thousands of hair cells in the cochlea to activate the neurons. Like the spread of electrical current from the cochlear implant limits the precision of the device even further. Mm. Like you can think of it like a blurry picture. It makes like uh, difficult to understand speech in noisy environment or even to recognize a basic well-known melody. Like my work is studying another technology called optogenetics, which allows neurons to be stimulated with visible light instead of electrical current. This allows us to activate nerves more precisely than electrical stimulation. In fact, like our research group is combining both electrical and optical technologies in order to make a hybrid stimulation device, like which we expect to offer higher spatial resolution while still maintaining some of the benefits uh, of electrical stimulation. So we hope like future cochlear implant users might be able to understand speech in noisy environment as well as enjoy music as well. Yeah, look, I love that. I love the idea of, you know, the, the fact that, you know, I'm an optical physicist by training. So, you know, get rid of that electrical stuff and chuck the optics in there, I say. But the fact that the, the those electrical, you know, connections, they bleed into so much area and it's, it, you know, they, they work incredibly well, but the precision the precision that we really want into the future is not there. So gr- great that you're looking into that technology. It's fantastic stuff. Thanks so much for chatting to us today. Thank you very much, Dan. Next up is uh, Diana Roblo, Roblido Rez, who I'm sure I butchered that. Diana, tell me, how do you say your name correctly with your accent, your beautiful accent? No, it was very good. Diana Robledo Ruiz. Yep. See, that was nothing like what I tried to do. Um, fantastic. <laughs> now, you're working on uh, this area of sort of genetic rescue, rescue in terms of conservation. For those who aren't aware of what genetic rescue is, give us an idea of what that means. Yes. So I know the term sounds very fancy, but genetic rescue is nothing more than to help individuals from an endangered population to mate with members of a different one. And this is because endangered populations tend to be very small. And at one point, pretty much all of them are related to each other. Mm. So with genetic rescue, we introduce fresh genetic variation. And with this, we improve their genetic health. Yeah, there must be some negative aspects of that, though, when you start mixing the genetics of various species and so forth, though. What, what is the, what's the downside um, of doing that? Yes, ex- yes, exactly. Now it's currently underutilized. And it, this is because if you think about it, when you have an endangered population, it is kind of precious, right? So you probably don't want to mix it with another one and lose what makes it special. Mm. The problem is that this population is probably very small. And by keeping it pure, you are probably condemning it to extinction. And you are also forgetting that before it was endangered by humans and when it was larger, in many cases, these crosses with other populations were completely natural. Mm. And uh, what you, you have a, a favorite there, the helmeted honey eater. How's that particular one going? Yes, uh, so the helmeted honey eater, or as we lovingly call it, the hijo, it is a beautiful bird endemic to Victoria. It is critically endangered, though. There are only around 250 individuals in the wild. Mm. So the genetic rescue started in 2018 by doing captive crosses with its closest relative, the yellow tufted honey eater. And the mixed birds have been released to the wild population where we expect them to save it from extinction. Yeah, look, that's amazing stuff. I hadn't heard a lot about this, but it's, it's obviously something to monitor very carefully to make sure we don't get undesirable outcomes for the, for the species, but at the same time, better than them disappearing completely. So some really interesting work there. Thanks so much, Diana. Great talking to you. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, we're flying through them. Next up, number 15 is Callista Lee and Quinn. Good morning, Callista. Morning, Shane. Thanks for having us. Now, you're going to deal with something that I've worried about for years, the appendix. We're all, you know, we're all in this mindset that we don't need it, that it doesn't matter. I had mine ripped out when it was fine when I was a youngster. Um, what's the deal with the appendix? Has it actually got a function? 
Yeah, so that's quite interesting, isn't it? So for many years, the appendix has been regarded as a structure, a bit of the gut that serves no purpose. And some people don't even care if they still have it or not. But lately, there's new research telling us that um, because of the shape of the appendix, it serves as a bacterial sanctuary, almost like a safe house and a reservoir for commensal gut bacteria. And the appendix also has an immune barrier function. So within the appendix itself, there's um, a lot of lymphoid tissue that produces proteins. And these proteins help us decide which bacteria is a friend and which bacteria is a foe. Oh, so my, it's pretty important. <laughs> oh my God, I feel depressed now. I don't have my appendix anymore. But at least you didn't say it makes people smarter or something because that would have been really bad. And so what, what's the, do we have to look at it more holistically then in the future when we talk about people having their appendix removed? Because I know, like in my case, I had it removed because if you have an appendix scar back then, it was better to not have it because if your appendix ever was a problem, doctors wouldn't be able to quickly determine that. So do we change our policies around this? Yeah, considering how common an appendectomy is nowadays, um, uh, yeah, we definitely should take into consideration these um, new data and new research of like how there's the appendix actually has a, a, a function. And I'm actually looking particularly at the function of the appendix in a, um, a genetic mouse model of autism. Mm. So, um, yeah, so in neurodevelopmental disorders and what is the function of these of the appendix and also how is that changed in a in a disease state? Good. You, you know, you've clearly wrecked it for a whole lot of people. We're all missing our appendixes now. Um, here we were thinking there were these useless things we didn't need. Thanks so much for, for enlightening us about this. Great work. Thanks, Shane. All right, folks, uh, number 16 is Alan DeRees from La Trobe University, Agriculture Victoria, and also from part of the Department of Defence. Good morning, Alan. Good morning. Sorry, that's a mouthful of uh, places that I'm from. Oh, no, it just means so many places are, you know, trying to get a piece of you. That that just, it sounds more important. Now, you're working on something that, uh, you know, it's kind of topical at the moment, the detection and identification of viruses. How do you, how do you go about that? Because I know what you're looking at is doing that in the field rather than only in the sort of laboratory environment. How do you get all that good stuff out into the field? Yeah, so if ever there was a time to get into a viral detection, boy, boy is it now. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm looking at using genomic detection uh, for, obviously, the characterization and detection of viruses in field. So there's a really cool little device from a genomics company. Uh, it's about the size of, like, two matchboxes, and you can sequence samples in real time. And this little device is what I'm basing all of my work on. So I have a giant computer, uh, it's a laptop, and then I have my little sequencing device. Um, and basically, I'm trying to develop protocols and methods that don't use any internet that are entirely cold chain independent. So we can take um, all of this equipment out into the field and detect viruses before they become uh, really big issues or cause any outbreaks. Yeah, fascinating stuff. Are you able, uh, well, let me pull back. Um, presumably, some viruses would be easier to detect than others. Is that the case? Yeah, so I'm really trying to go. So, obviously, we have problems with unknown viruses. So, I'm trying to develop all of this work to be entirely independent. So, you can sequence a sample um, and pull out any of the viral genome and construct that into a whole genome and then detect whether it is unknown, whether it's maybe closely related to a species that we know about, and then kind of build on that. So it is entirely independent, and it means we can detect potential unknown viruses before they cause any major problems, which is really difficult, but incredibly yeah. important. Yeah, look, really interesting stuff. Thanks so much, Alan, for talking about this, and hopefully all that work will go well and we'll get that remote stuff going as soon as possible. Thank you. Next up is Ella Sweeney from the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Good morning, Ella. 
Morning, Shane. How are you going? I'm going great. Is um, now you're you're working in an area that I find fascinating, and that's the the sort of recovery period post concussion, and obviously you're, the the children's there. So working on children and a blood test to look at some of those those factors. It seems to me like concussion is just this mystery box that you don't know what's in, and you know until later, and you find out when it's almost too late. Well, I mean, how is this blood test going to tell us more? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great question. So concussion basically is just a knock to a head, the head and it shakes up or disturbs the normal functioning of our brain. But the really important thing about this blood test is we could be able to predict whether a child will experience symptoms more than two weeks after their injury. And that would be really helpful because then clinicians would be able to provide targeted treatment to those children who may be experiencing delayed recovery and it would hopefully allow them to sort of recover more quickly and reduce their symptom burden long term. Mm. It's um it's one of those things where at the moment what's the sort of standard scenario? I mean I've had a I've had a kid bump ahead and go into the children's emergency room and usually there's a, a watch and wait and see um, for a period, but then that's pretty short lived, isn't it? And then and then you go home and with the advice to sort of make sure you don't see anything unusual. But Presumably, this would truncate that. Yeah, absolutely. So at the moment, the standard scenario is a kid comes into the emergency department. Doctors will be able to diagnose their concussion looking at how well they're balancing, how well they're responding to the way that the clinician's talking and how their eye movement's going. But they have no way of detecting how the kid is going to be recovering in two weeks' time. Mm. And that's what the real game changer is here. Yeah, and I suppose just finally there, concussion can have real long-term effects on all sorts of things for people, can't it? Yeah, and it's really important in children because they can um, it can really limit their ability to get back to school and to socialise with their friends and play sport. And as we know, that really impacts um, kid, um, children's development in a really big way sometimes. Yeah, Ella, look, fascinating work. Good luck with that. I hope you do get that all sorted because I think it's one of those areas where parents are just freaking out when something like that happens and not knowing is really problematic and not being able to provide the proper care necessarily is, is problematic as well. Thanks so much for chatting to us yeah thank you shane right folks uh, we're getting towards the end number 18 rianne and sick luna from the university of sydney good morning rianne good morning dr shane thanks for having me uh great to have you on the show now you work on an area that has profound implications around the world and that is the you know the opioid crisis where my understanding from what you said is it's killing some hundred and twenty thousand people a year and you're looking at some of the alternatives to dealing with this, for example, medicinal cannabis. What are you What are you looking at there? Yeah, so opioids are used for pain relief, for, for example, following a surgery. However, they're actually highly addictive substances because firstly, they hijack the brain's reward system. Secondly, you need to take more and more over time for enough pain relief. And finally, when you stop taking them, you feel really crappy which might make you want to take even more. So we've found that CBD, which is a specific part of that medicinal cannabis plant, doesn't actually make you high. Uh, It reduces that crappy withdrawal syndrome in mice that happens when you stop taking opioids. Mm. However, I have also discovered that CBD actually worsens the development of tolerance to the pain-relieving effects of opioids in mice. So you might need to, you might need to actually take more opioid for enough pain relief. So that's quite surprising results there. Yeah, and uh, does that mean more controlled use of medicinal cannabis to get sort of maybe find a sweet spot? Is that sort of what we're looking for? You know, one where it helps us in one way but doesn't give us that that negative aspect in the other. Is it likely there's a sweet spot? Yeah, I mean it's it's unclear at the moment, and I think. You know, up to 50% of opioid users are actually taking cannabis in some form. So my data does suggest that in some contexts, maybe perhaps uh, CBD use might be beneficial, for example, uh, in reducing that withdrawal syndrome acutely. However, in other contexts, it might be detrimental. So it might be detrimental to take CBD alongside opioids because you might need to then increase the dose of the opioid over time to get enough pain relief. Uh, so there's definitely a lot of research to be done mm. to see uh, what the optimal way would be to uh, receive CBD alongside the opioid. Um, but yeah, yep. it, could, it could be could have staggering implications. 
Yeah, well, certainly I think a lot of people who, who have to take opioids would know, you know, the issues around constipation, nausea and everything else, in addition to the addiction, you know, threat is, um, is really awful. So hopefully we'll find a, a good solution there and, and have a more open, open approach to the use of medicinal cannabis than what's been there in the past. Thanks so much, Rianne, for chatting to us. Thank you, Shane. Next up is Christine Mills from Queen's University in Canada. Good morning, Christine, or should I say good very early morning? I think it's about 2 o'clock in the morning for you. Yes, good morning, Shane. It's, uh, it's great for you to come online. Thanks so much for staying up or getting up or whichever one it was. Now, you're looking at um, groups of adults that are at nutrition risk and, and some of the social factors that sort of play into that. Tell us about that work. Yes. So um, in Canada and actually in Australia and many other high income countries, about a third of older adults who live in the community, so they're not in care homes or in long term care, are at nutrition risk, which means they don't consume enough food or drink enough fluids, water to maintain good health. And there are many reasons for this, and I'm exploring some of the social factors. Mm. And and what sort of things um, can we do? Do you think to to sort of offset that? Because obviously this is a you know wrecks lives, but it also costs the economies a lot of money as as a result. I mean, presumably some of the savings would be well placed in programs that help with this. Exactly, and if anything, you know, the pandemic has shown us that social isolation plays a huge role in health. And so we know, for instance, that eating with others improves intake. So if Mm. you eat with others, you're likely to eat more and you're likely to eat better. But we don't know what other social factors can affect nutrition over the long term. So that's what I'm trying to find out. Yeah, it's fascinating to me how many things, you know, when we shine the bright light of lockdown from the pandemics and so forth, and we see the the sort of effect in right in front of us all of a sudden, people are starting to take notice. And presumably this is a is really a bit of an advantage that we can sort of see this playing out in real time and, and be able to decouple some of the things that we didn't know before. Exactly. I mean, the pandemic's been absolutely horrid, but it's really shone a light on a lot of the deficiencies that are present in a lot of our healthcare systems. Yeah. Well, Chris, thanks so much for staying up and chatting to us all the way from Canada. We really appreciate it. Good luck with that really important research. Nutrition is such an important element that many of us take for granted, but it's, it's not obviously there for everyone. Thanks so much. Thank you, Shane. Folks, uh, our last uh, member of our 20 and 20 for today is Hashani De Silva from Swinburne University of Technology. Good morning, Hashani. How are you going? Hi, Shane. Good, thanks. How are you? Good. It's great to talk to you. Now, you're working on a very serious issue, which is the prevalence of sort of family violence as seen in parts of South South Asia being very, very high. And you're looking at, you know, given we have a large community in Australia from, from those regions, um, what that might look like here. What, what sort of things are you finding? Yeah, so um, as you suggested um International research does actually show that South Asians may be vulnerable to experiencing family violence at a heightened level. Mm. Um, but Australia has very limited research on this population, um, even though we have a really fast-growing pop- South Asian population in Australia. Um, so I guess I'm currently undertaking exploratory research using um the 2016 Personal Safety Survey um, collected by the Australian Bureau of Statistics with the hope of providing some foundational numbers that can help inform policy and service provision, but also provide a launch pad for future research as we virtually have no data on this population in Australia. Yeah, presumably that would then allow you to allocate sort of funding through policies and so forth um, to be, you know, disproportionately directed if there is a, if there is a you know, area of concern there, yeah? Yes, definitely. So um, essentially, um, we're hoping that our, the, I guess the research that I do will provide some foundational numbers that can, um, I guess, assist with identifying a need to cater for this population. Um, and I guess, yeah, provide um, services that are relevant and appropriate. 
Yep. Look, it's it's an area of great need. Uh, I think at the moment there is seems to be a good public conversation going on about this this area more generally. So you know, if there are more vulnerable populations, then it's a good time to be doing that research and getting those numbers out, and hopefully getting some support where we're needed into those communities. Hashani, thanks so much for being the final member of our twenty and twenty program for today. No problem. Thanks so much for having us. It's an absolute pleasure. Three. You are listening to 3 R. It's Einstein and Gogo. We're in the final couple of minutes. A huge thank you to all 20 of the PhDs who just did the 20 PhDs in 20 minutes program. It, uh, it's fast-paced, folks. Hopefully you enjoyed the enthusiasm and the passion that was coming through from all of them. They were all pretty nervous, but I think you'll agree they did an absolutely spectacular job. And uh, it was my pleasure to interact with all of them over the last few days. Now, next week on Triple R, of course, we will be doing the first of our two Radiothon shows. It's a pretty big deal for the station this year because as with many different organizations uh, around the world, actually not just in Australia, but around the world, our revenue has been hit uh, as a result of the pandemic, which means that Triple R is even more your station than it ever was before because most of our revenue will come from the support of the community. And we would very much appreciate your uh, support next week when we do our first radio uh, Thon Show. I'll have my whole team on the line with me. It'll be a lot of fun. We'll be giving you a lot of science. It won't just be us uh, doing Radiothon stuff. We'll be teaching you a lot of stuff. It'll be cool. And anyone, of course, who subscribes during the show will read out your name and details and thank you as personally as we possibly can for that because uh, you'll be the ones helping to make the station continue on in the way it has. I think uh, from my perspective, uh, we have had a tough couple of years, um, but it is an absolute pleasure to come in here to Triple R every weekend and interact with a relatively small group of people that are running the Sunday grid and the shows. And I, even this morning, uh, Cam, who's ready over there to do Eat It, uh, we both turned up and realized we were wearing the same shirt. So uh, things keep us smiling here, and hopefully things are keeping you smiling out there in the community as well. There's some bad stuff going on at the moment and some bad behavior, but um, the more we are careful towards each other and the more we do the right thing the sooner we'll be able to return to the sorts of lifestyle that we all previously enjoyed big part of that's vaccinations another big part of it's wearing masks and doing it in the right place if you're buying coffee folks uh, don't drink it with your mask off in the shop leave the shop and go somewhere else and drink it this will all help us it's okay to feel a bit crappy at the moment i think most of us are a bit worn out from this but uh, remember to support each other and triple r will be there for you uh, throughout this period we're not going anywhere no matter um, what we have to do so all of us are committed to that From me, remember science is everywhere. I'm Dr. Shane. I very much look forward to chatting to you again next week. But until then, uh, hang in there, listen to Triple R, listen to this great presenter coming up now with the team from Eat It. Cam's going to be talking all about food. It's one of the great things that we still have and we still enjoy. Thanks for listening to Einstein and GoGo, and we'll chat to you again next week. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and GoGo a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.